0: Hello, and welcome to today's Barron's Live. I'm Abby Schultz, a senior writer at Barron's Penta. And today I'm joined by William Burkhardt, CEO of the Investment Integration Project, or TIP, which is a consulting services applied research firm um, that focuses on system-level investing. So briefly, that's about recognizing the interconnection between social, environmental, and financial systems, but um, we're gonna talk about that a little bit more later. Um, And we're also gonna be talking about the potential investment opportunities that could be uh, that could arise from the climate bill that was recently signed into law and what that may mean for investors that are seeking systems change. So Bill's been on before to talk about systems, system-level investing. Um, and um, and so we will be going into some depth about that, but not, um, not entirely since we have talked about this before. But um, in any case, Bill, it's great to have you here again.
1: Yeah, thrilled to be here, Abby. <laughs>
0: So before we get started, I just want to remind everyone tuning in that you can write in questions for for Bill and and for, for me to ask. And I'll try to get to them before our time is up. So Bill, why don't we start off by just giving us, giving everyone a brief description of what TIP is about and what system level investing means.
1: Yeah, so like you said, so we're a consulting services and applied research firm. And so we essentially help investors manage systemic risks and solutions essentially helping them integrate policies, programs, and practices. Another way to kind of think of it is as investment evolved from kind of a focus on a single security to managing a basket of securities, system-level investing essentially helps investors to manage the context in which their portfolios exist. So that's at the high level, what system-level investing is and, and how TIPS supports investors.
0: Got it. So we'll get into that a little bit more later, But um, but first I want to dive right into the Inflation Reduction Act, which is often referred to as the climate bill, because it includes nearly $370 billion in tax credits and other incentives to address climate change. And um, I'm curious what you think the significance of this legislation is. Yeah, Mm
1: -hmm. no, I mean, if this was an email and you did the TLDR, uh, the too long didn't read is it's unprecedented, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not just, I'm not suggesting that U.S. government hasn't stepped in dramatically in times of like big uncertainty, right? It's clear uh, track record of doing that. Um, yeah, but this is the f- first time that it's done it on a national level at this scale as it relates to climate change. And so the hope here is that this particular piece of legislation is going to ultimately translate into helping to de-risk these types of investments, ultimately get them to scale And in combination with a bunch of other climate change related regulatory action that the government is doing right now will hopefully send this kind of clear signal to the private sector and investors in particular that this is now a real priority um, and that they should be prioritizing it accordingly.
0: So within the bill is $27 billion for something called a Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. Um, So it's a little complicated it includes 20 billion to fund a national green bank or perhaps some regional green banks um and so green bank is kind of another name for this greenhouse gas reduction fund um or another way to think of it is as is as a clean energy accelerator that's another term that's kind of widely used to describe um these kinds of these kinds of entities. So maybe if you could just tell us a little bit what, what a green bank is better than what I'm trying to do here and what kind of projects and what kind of projects that you see it funding. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, I
1: I think you're, uh, you're, you're where a lot of people are right now, kind of like leafing through to be like Googling green banks. Um, So green banks, they're essentially, um, they use a combination of public and private money. And the idea is that Uh, you can take a smaller amount of public funds and essentially leverage that for private dollars to ultimately support and grow various sorts of, um, in this particular case, climate mitigation and adaption projects. So in another sense, it's it's really using public investment funds set up by the government. Um, They don't take deposits from consumers um, and they don't have this kind of mandate to use, uh, but they do have a mandate to use kind of debt financing techniques. such as like direct lending or lines of credit to back infrastructure projects that are meant to essentially lower carbon emissions. Um, You can point to kind of some of the other examples of this kind of national level type action, like uh, in the United Kingdom, there's a green bank that's essentially funded a lot of the big developments around offshore wind um, that the government ultimately sold in 2017, like that came from a green bank. Um, There's Australia's Green Bank, uh, which is the largest in the world, and it's invested in wind and solar and hydrogen development, um, in addition to financing all sorts of construction of energy efficient homes and and the like.
0: And so in the U.S., though, we've also had them, right, at the state and local level. um, There's like 23 of them, I think, around the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. do, Do you know of any, what they've done, any projects?
1: yeah yeah so so it it's all shades of the same stuff, right? like so mm. fundamentally, even the ones that are kind of more at the local level and state level, they're essentially trying to get the private sector to uh, put money into these kind of climate mitigation and adaption projects. and so um you know, in terms of examples, you have like new york's yeah. green fund green bank uh, essentially funded community solar projects mm. that allowed people to buy a stake in a community project so, People who either couldn't afford solar panels or couldn't find space for them on their roofs still were able to subscribe to community solar. And essentially, they reap the benefits of cheaper electricity. Another example would be in Connecticut. There's Green Bank that provides essentially uh, a lot of work on solar projects, especially kind of gearing its programs toward lower income communities and residents who might uh, might not otherwise yet again be able to get panels installed. So those are two examples of you know more solar panel, But there's obviously right. other examples those are the two that kind of jumped to mind.
0: And, and so some of this funding, of course, like you said, is going to be sort of to, to help projects that might not um, have gotten funding uh, otherwise. Is that, is that right? So could be new technologies as well?
1: Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It could be innovative mm-hmm. things. Um, and, and part of the reason why these banks are so critical is that they often, these projects, these climate mitigation adaption projects they don't necessarily have the scale to really be accessible to kind of Wall Street. And so you kind of have to figure out a way to develop these projects so that they can grow and scale, ultimately be securitized and then get, then really be able to tap into more kind of mainstream public markets. And so that's the idea is that you start to kind of leverage these different um, sources of capital to ultimately get to that point where it, these become real shovel ready investable properties for our, um, Opportunities for right. uh, some of which are properties uh, for investors.
0: Um, so, uh, so you've been kind of talking about this a little bit, but th- it's really private markets and private market investors who would um, be able to invest alongside the government in these cases. Um, how how would that what would that look like? I guess. And 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 you also touched. You mentioned securitization. I'm curious about what that mean what that means and what that would you know could mean for the future of this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, the, so the way it essentially helps to incentivize investors riding alongside is that government will often take kind of guarantee positions or put in kind of first loss money. They'll do yeah. things that essentially take some of the risk out of these investments and that ulti- or both take risk out, but then also put money in that helps get these opportunities to a point where they can be kind of packaged and ultimately, if they're packaged enough and they get to a certain size, they can actually be kind of sold to secondary markets on Wall Street. That's what, by securitization. So it. it's that way of kind of government helping to, yet again, de-risk and ultimately scale these things so that they are more digestible and attractive to uh, more mainstream investors.
0: So how does, um, just a step back to think about Uh, system-level investing a bit. How does a policy intervention such as this climate bill contribute to how investors would take a system-level approach to addressing climate change um, or any other system-level issue, really?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, so the the role of government, particularly when you think of these big kind of complex, muddy problems, right, these big systemic problems. Mm -hmm. So it's a critical feature. Um, and so when we often think about policy intervention, we think about regulatory measures that ultimately help kind of promote the development of, in this case, like climate-friendly industries. And they do that through subsidies, tax abatements, preferential purchasing programs, carbon pricing or taxes, and similar things. Um, and that ultimately what we find is that you know policy and the role of government, it, it essentially both can, in this particular case, help to incentivize action, so it's the carrot, um, but then it can also be the stick, right? And it can create the kind of enabling environment that shows like, hey, there's real penalties for not doing this authentically, but then it also kind of sets a direction for markets to consider. Um, and so we see that as like a very big kind of pivotal piece when you think of a system level focus that uh, investors ultimately help to have to help inform regulatory measures um, but that we see them as a critical feature of getting investors to be able to actually drive that big system level influence
0: um, so what would this look like in an in an, in an investment portfolio like a system level approach to climate change it so I know it's more than just investing in public companies like solar companies or wind companies it, it goes goes a lot beyond that right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, when you think about it, if you step back and you think of like, what is a system level investor trying to do? And ultimately what they're trying to say is like, there is a holistic view or vision of what an alternative could be. And Mm -hmm. so these kinds of investors are really looking for these unique leverage points within these different systems to ultimately catalyze change. And then they start to kind of set goals and uh, measure and evaluate all those, all the sorts of things to go with that. So to directly bring it back to your question so it's like yeah they will build portfolios that are devoted to solar energy and wind power and battery storage and all the all the good things right but then they go a little bit further and this is where you get into this kind of idea of yeah. saying they're going to also use their voice and they're going to have you know uh, participate in calls for mandatory disclosure of ghg emissions um so they can make better decisions They're going to join with their peers, which is not something that, you know, the investment community is often known for, but they're going to join with their peers in collaborative efforts like Climate Action 100 plus and kind of work collectively to engage some of the biggest emitters on uh, greenhouse gases. Um, They're going to create new markets for climate-friendly investment products, like Green Bonds, and support, Mm. you know, setting of voluntary and government-backed standards for what defines those markets. And then ultimately, like, I'm I'm doing this from the Council of Institutional Investors, um, their big fall conference, and, you know, so it's trade association. They're going to urge trade associations like this to essentially not work against their members for calls for climate action. And I will say, just being here right now, I mean, you can't, every panel is essentially talking about climate action in some way, shape or form. Um, and that's, you know, yet again, that's aligned with the members wanted. And so there's a lot of focus of it.
0: Uh, that, that's, uh, that's super interesting. So I know that at TIP you've developed a platform that, that um, along with, with others, um, it's called Systems, Systems Aware Investing Launchpad. Um, and more simply called SALE, uh, the acronym. Um, and so it's designed to help guide investors who wanna take this approach, a system level approach. Could, could you, um, can you talk about that and, and how, would it, how would it work in this instance?
1: Yeah. So, so what I just laid out for what it would mean to be like a system level investor as it relates to climate change sounded Mm -hmm. super complicated. And I think any investor listening in is like, okay, Bill, but where do I even start? And that was the whole point of why we created SAIL. And so it's essentially to do all of these things, you have to be, you know, rethinking your policies, your programs, your practices, because all of these things have to ultimately be deployed if you're going to take a system focus. And so what we heard from all sorts of investors that we're working with is like make this more easy make this more effective and then ultimately make this cheaper and so that's essentially what we drove into the creation of sale and so it's Mm -hmm. this kind of first of its kind turnkey solution that guides investors in developing system level investment approaches across all sorts of dimensions so it helps them decide which systemic issues to focus on and then related tactics and strategies it outlines a six-step process for investors to essentially engage um, in revising or otherwise updating things like RFPs, statement of investment beliefs, target investment programs, shareholder engagement activities, manager due diligence, and then it also helps them start to consider how to leverage what we call these advanced techniques that were essentially specifically designed to achieve influence at a system level, and it does it across different systemic issues. So that's essentially it's you know it's it's kind of a um, it's a way to turnkey, plug and play, however you want to say it, it, it creates the um, framework to essentially develop a system level investment strategy or roadmap.
0: So uh, uh, this is really, you know, and this this is going to be the kind of thing that an institutional investor really looks at, right? Or a foundation. Uh, uh, is there a way for an individual to think about system level investing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because cause that's the, the the whole thing, and, and even so, high net worth individual, even retail or mass affluent. Part of what we've been starting to, you know, we spent a year beta beta testing this thing, and a mm-hmm. lot of the feedback we've been getting is around okay, help um, help kind of do the variations for these other kinds of investors. And so that's part of what we're working through right now is like talking mm-hmm. to a bunch of different groups that focus on family offices or focus on high net worth individuals, and trying to figure out to take a systemic approach you have a bunch of these different windows any investor does to operate through. And so how do you do that? So that's part of what we're working through right now. So as part of the next kind of iterations of sale, you'll start to see more of that
0: kind of come through. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Okay. So I want to go back to the legislation for a bit, the climate, the climate bill. The, so as we talked about the, the greenhouse gas reduction fund is going to focus on uh, climate mitigation and adaptation projects. Um, projects, one thing I know is that you've done some research that's found institutional investors have been reluctant to invest in some of these areas in the past um, because of policy barriers. So um, subsidies to fossil fuel industries being being among them. And the fact that there isn't a lot of consistency globally, really, in regulatory frameworks to support um, corporate climate risk disclosure and analysis. So how corporations are, you know, how the, what what they are what they need to disclose in terms of their their um, climate impact, and so um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about these barriers, barriers, and how the legislation may help in breaking through them, or or will it help break through them?
1: Yeah, yeah, no. So I think I think the short answer is, um, for the U.S., it will help to address some of it. Um, just taking a step back, so tip did a big body of work with the World Bank. And this was in the run-up to APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Region Summit in Chile in 2019. Mm-hmm. And I highlight all that to simply say part of the mandate that was given to us was to say, why is it that institutional investor capital in particular was not flowing in the APEC region, flowing to climate mitigation and adaption, even though the need was so great and that the issues related to um, the risk were growing. And so essentially what we zoned in on was that policymakers essentially really needed to meaningfully start confronting, to your point, kind of these well-known, so well-known policy barriers like fossil fuel subsidies, but also ensuring that regulatory frameworks support corporate climate-related risk disclosures and related analysis, management, and reporting, um, leveraging more proven kind of blended finance structures, so connecting institutional investors with other kind of investment-grade products and provide kind of immediate opportunities to contribute to climate finance. Um, And then developing more local capital markets that can essentially become pipelines for a lot of these opportunities as they continue to scale. And so there was all these things around, I mean, I think fundamentally what it comes down to is that there needs to be more transparency. There needs to be more consistency in that transparency um, and that there need to be those kind of regulated platforms that investors can trust for being able to identify and then ultimately invest or otherwise engage on these kinds of opportunities. And so there was a lot of this kind of meaningful role of kind of policy to address some of these barriers. And I think when we look at what's happening here in the U.S., this bill is just one piece of a larger, kind of more comprehensive push that the government is trying to make to get investors in the private sector more generally to really wake up, up and take climate change seriously. Yeah. Um, and so I think when you, when you take that in the context of some of these other things that, you uh, the public sector is doing, I think then we can say, yeah, we can actually start to see how some of these pain points are actually being addressed. I will just caveat and say devil's in the details because we still don't quite know how a lot of these projects are going to be picked and exactly where all the money and what portions of the money is going to go where. And so there's a lot of that that still has to get ironed out. So maybe some of these pain points won't get addressed, but right now they seem to be on the road to actually addressing some of them.
0: Right, right. Um, so uh, we well we've talked about climate mitigation and adaptation too in the bill, but there's a lot of incentives um, that could help really um, give a boost to a lot of different industries that have been working on various aspects of uh, or, v- or various technologies that could um, address climate change. Among them, energy efficiency—you know, retrofitting buildings to make them more efficient. There's a lot of incentives around electric cars and charging state charging stations and. Um, and also, um, you know, to, to assist companies that are working on more far off projects like sustainable aviation fuel, um, which is a big thing, green heart, you know, perhaps by um, doing that through the use of green hydrogen and um, carbon capture. And so I'm wondering, you know, do you see a lot more opportunities arising for climate, you know, investors who care about climate change as a result of this bill in terms of maybe new companies? Um, um, more public market opportunities or private? I mean, where do you see, I guess the the real advantage or potential opportunity for investors? Um, yeah,
1: so so I think that for sure. I, I guess I would answer it kind of two ways. So I think that the it will be an incentive that definitely starts to promote more of this kind of systemic level focus on climate progress, right? Um, but I think we, what we have to bear in mind is like what it's actually like, what part of the puzzle is it really solving for? And so, you know, Tip has worked with like over 100 asset owners and managers kind of helping to understand like what are they doing and what kind of techniques are they using to ultimately drive towards these big system level kind of goals, right? We, at a very high level, we identify 10 of these different groups or 10 of these different strategies that ultimately can be kind of essentially grouped into three big buckets. And one bucket is field building, one bucket is investment enhancement, one bucket is opportunity generation. And so as these kind of like broad categories, they essentially speak to a path forward. So first investors start working more collectively, that's the field building. Then they change the way they make investments, so that's investment enhancement, and then they create investment opportunities that improve systems, so that's opportunity generation. So in this particular case, while we're fundamentally talking about policy, right? So we're talking about a field building technique, and it's ultimately meant to try to help pool resources so that investors start to act more collectively. And you know ultimately, they'll be able to share more about the complexities of the system and align goals. Um, and so that's like, when you think about what's happening here, that's fundamentally, it's kind of setting the necessary conditions for the kind of activity, for the kind of investments that ultimately will lead to investment enhancement to to different kinds of opportunity generation. So I think where we are is like, we're in the first inning of a multi-inning. I'm really horrible. uh, sports metaphors, um, so my <laughs> colleagues are going to make fun of me for this, but we're in the first inning of a nine inning game, I don't know, um, but but that's the idea, is to say setting the preconditions for the kind of opportunities that exactly what we were talking about earlier that are going to have to kind of range across different types of tactics.
0: Right, right. Um, uh, so we just got a question from a listener. Um Scott, who who asked um, this, you know, how will the politis... I mean, and we, we've we talked about this before, about the politicization... Politiz- I can't say that word. Uh-huh. <laughs> about how say- e- ESG has become a, really a political football in some ways. ESG meaning environmental, social, and governance. Um, like, focusing on environmental and social govern- governance factors and in investing. Um, and so, like, some state government officials have been... Um, Um, criticizing it. And so what our listeners asking is, you know, uh, how does that mesh that trend? How does that mesh with the momentum that's been building toward renewable solutions? We have kind of this push-pull going on.
1: Yeah. So, and and we've had the push-pull for a while, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And you can look at that in DOL guidance. You can look at that. I mean, you know, the foundation community would say that um, as well, just in terms of, you know, is... Is alignment of endowment and programmatic goals, or is that permissible? Um, does it jeopardize the prudent man rule for uh, pension funds? You know, the DOL guidance—it's been, you know, depending on the administration, it's—it's it's been this kind of like back and forth. Um, and I think what's happening right now is it, it. This this is a this is a cycle we've seen before, and basically, what ends up happening is you're going to have this big moment where there's going to be this constant tension. Um, I think what ended up happening and why this has been so um, so particularly charged, or it feels like that right now, is you had the kind of big win, right? When um, uh, engine number no. one, you know, did that big campaign, got board seats on Exxon, mm-hmm. um, and I think it it initiated a kind of um, a reflection where all of a sudden people were like, oh, we have to take this seriously because now it's like going to fundamentally reshape who we are as a company, the industries that we focus on and put us on a path to progress that maybe just wasn't front and center before and it wasn't incentivized before. And so I think that you're seeing this kind of like lurching of the gears right now. Um, And it's happening at a time and the kind of scrutiny now is on the industry at a time when the expectations of what this industry, the promise of what everybody thought ESG would be or what it became was all about, we're going to solve the world's problems the entire scaffolding for this industry was about risk mitigation. That's the story that it could tell. So everything that we have was really about that. And so what you find now is an industry that's being scrutinized for the ambition, for the aspiration of what it could be, even though it's not necessarily there yet. It's trying and it's moving fast to try to get there. So so you just have this kind of like uh, a disconnect right now. But I think fundamentally what we've seen every time this sort of, you know, it's called joyful noise. Um, when this kind of thing happens, um, at the end of the day, you see continued growth. And it fundamentally, it's like the question that folks have to ask themselves is like, as an investor, do I want more information or less information? And that's, that's fundamentally what we're talking about. Do you, do you want more information about potential risk to your portfolio and potential sectors of opportunity? If you don't, then you can, be, you can stick with the naysayers, right? Um, if you do and you think that's a good sign of investing, which fiduciary duty would suggest that it is, then you should get behind this. And so I think that ultimately this is going to be, it, it, there's going to be rightfully, there's going to be more scrutiny because there has been a lot of impact watching. Um But I think that that's ultimately going to give way to just a kind of uh, a resignation that, you know, this is this is the way that investing should be done going forward. Um, at least that's my opinion on it.
0: Yeah. Um, no, there's uh, it it. it it still is relatively new when you think about it. And, and certainly the impact of ESG and impact investing has has accelerated really in kind of quickly in recent years. So understandable. We start to see some of this scrutiny. Um, so I have another question from a listener. It's very specific. It's about tax-exempt private debt. Um, so Elizabeth is asking um, whether, well, she says that tax, tax-exempt private debt for clean um, or renewable energy companies and projects is being floated as an option to bring more capital into the sector, and I'm wondering, do you, do you know anything about that? And and could you, if if so, um, I, she is asking to discuss the opportunities and obstacles that are presented by by these private tax-exempt bonds. Have you have you heard of that at all? So you I've haven't?
1: heard of it. I'm not yeah. as familiar with it, so I feel mm. kind of. I, I probably know enough to be dangerous, which is never okay. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Well, there's there's certainly there's certainly a, a big and grow and constantly growing green bond market. Um, yeah. And 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 sustainable bond market. Um, I guess tax exempt would mean they would be municipal. They'd be funding municipal projects. Um, yeah. So you could which, get which that I tax.
1: Think, yeah, which I think you know. So there is there's a there's a little bit of um, the the idea that government is kind of putting up resources uh that the benefit goes to private investors but kind of the downside really gets owned by government i think there's a little bit of um uh scrutiny around that because people don't quite know how this is all going to quite shake out just yet mm, right. uh so i think it's, it's definitely a dimension to watch uh but i just yeah i i would feel uh, foolish if I spoke too much on it.
0: (laughs) Okay, so not to throw another question at you that you may not know the answer to, but uh, because this is kind of an economic question um, from Ryan who's wondering about uh, rising interest rates and um, how that could affect investments into renewables. I mean, would people be like, not, yeah, just how, is that something you thought about at all?
1: Yeah, well, so we think about it in the context of um, do do rising interest rates ultimately make investors more um, uh, conservative in terms of things that they'll consider, um, particularly across their their balance sheets? Um, and I think it. I it, I don't know. I mean, that, that that's the short answer. I mean, I I think we we're still kind of in the early stages of how bad this is going to get.
0: <laughs>
1: right. So, so I, think, I, I think that it's right now, I I talk to a lot of friends that are, you know, particularly various managers, um, product developers, and people are, there's a sense that you can, you get this feeling of um, there's a, everybody's kind of holding their breath a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's probably going to be the MO for a little bit is that people are just going to kind of see, because the Fed might do more, um, and if the Fed does more, that will obviously have, um, you know, because a lot of these opportunities are going to relate to real estate, and that's right. you know, interest. So there will be a trickle. Oh God, I do I want to say trickle effect, um, but there will be there will be an echo effect of what of what's yeah. going on in some way.
0: Right, right. That makes sense. Um, so just kind of swinging back to system level investing, um, I'm I'm wondering if you could. Um, you mentioned how it's really, um, well, I'm in the back, I'm getting tangled up in two questions here. So I'm going to talk about, ask you a question about system level investing, and that's, um, what kind of adoption you're seeing it it, about it so far. So you've been doing this work for about a, a decade, but really kind of ramping up more recently. I'm, I'm curious, you know, what kind of adoption you're seeing and are you finding investors like at this conference that you're at, are they curious about it, exploring it, you know, and how are they approaching it right now?
1: Yeah. So, so definitely at the conference, you're seeing the kind of systems language it's showing up more and more and more. Mm. Um, And, and it's showing up by, you know, it's, uh, I did a panel with uh, representatives from APG and BlackRock and Westpath. And all of them, and and they're thinking about it in the context of alignment with SDGs, but taking, going beyond the alignment with them, um, the sustainable development goals, but going beyond them to say, okay, now we really need to understand outcomes. We need to uh, start to understand what the real kind of contributions that we're making to these issues and how ultimately that's netting out to be a more kind of stable operating environment for our investments. And so you have a lot of folks that are definitely starting to talk about it. I would match that though with, we did a big industry needs assessment. Uh, it we started it last year, wrapped it up at the beginning of this year, and that's ultimately contributed to why we're doing the things that we're doing right now. But in that industry needs assessment, what we found from a survey and focus groups and targeted interviews was that there is a overall heightened awareness of the idea of taking a systems focus, mm-hmm. um, but there is still a real uh, inconsistency in terms of how people understand what it actually means, and the implications and expectations that go with it, um, and the kind of understanding of what to actually do. And you can see that most clearly with net zero commitments. where you have everybody saying, yes, we all agree we need to do it. And I guarantee you, if you ask 10 investors, well, how best can we do it? You're going to get 10 different responses, and probably Mm. half of them are, I actually don't know.
0: Yeah it's it's uh and so i guess through like working through something like your sale platform that could be one way of getting there it it seems like yeah
1: absolutely yeah and and you're and we're starting i mean just even with the work that we're doing with investors where we're starting to get these questions written into rfps and you know Mm -hmm. admittedly when we talk to the various owners that we're working with and they say and, and i'll ask them like what what was the response once you actually started fielding these things and the response is often yeah you know it's very lackluster and Yet again, these managers are kind of misconstruing things and whatnot, but that, but that you're starting to see it in governance policies. Um, we just wrapped up a consulting engagement with University Pension Plan, um, a jointly sponsored pension plan in Canada that they you know, they're they wanted to start. They're new. I mean, they're only, I think, about two years old, um, but they wanted to start with a fundamental focus on systems. And so that we now, they now have a statement of investment beliefs Um, It clearly calls attention to the need to take a systemic focus, um, and that's starting to, you know, help to inform everything else that they do um, in terms of policies, programs, practices. And so we're seeing more of those examples now. Um, And, you know, it's like uh, fluoride in the water. You know, once it's in there, you can't get it out. (laughs)
0: Um, Well, uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Bill, thank you so much. It was a really great session. Uh, I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, To our listeners, uh, join Barron's Live again on Monday when Barron's senior writer, Nicholas Jasinski, will be speaking with Truist Advisory Services co-CIO Keith Lerner, who who uses a mix of fundamental and technical factors in his analysis. They'll discuss the outlook for the stock market and industry sectors, Federal Reserve policy, and also how to position portfolios for the months and year ahead. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe and healthy. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step-by-step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.